This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. All right, so our topic tonight is friendship, freedom, and the good life. There's a lot packed into that. And in a way, friendship summarizes all of it, as I'll try to explain over the course of the talk. But let's begin with this. Let's begin with the theme of freedom. It's something that we, that we all yearn for or long for in our hearts. So let's ask a simple question. What is a free human being? What's a free person? It's a topic or a question that raises a lot of confusion, especially in our society, where in the United States of America, we pride ourselves on being free people. We even call it the land of the free, the home of the brave. But there's a serious question about whether we are all really free. Now, you might expect me at this point to begin talking about unjust social structures that are around us and ways that people are oppressed by social conditions around them. But I'm going to take another angle. There's another way in which a human being can fail to be free, even in a society like ours, where it seems like we enjoy a lot of political freedoms. What's a free human being then? I mean, someone who's really and truly free. On a classic understanding, we can say that a free person, a free human being, is someone who lives according to reason. Someone who lives according to reason or according to right reason. When human beings live according to reason, they don't just go around doing whatever they want or whatever whim they happen to have or whatever impulse they may be so that may be going through them at any one point in time. Rather, they live, they choose as they should consistently again and again, over and over. And when a person chooses what they should consistently again and again, over and over, the person gradually acquires dispositions to do so. They're called virtues, stable dispositions to act according to the mean of virtue, okay, or according to the mean between extremes in various moral matters. I presume you know the story when it comes to courage, for example, the matter is fear, and courage is a virtue, a stable disposition that governs our fears. And when a person has courage, that person is able to act in the face of threatening situations or fear, uh, frightening situations, and is able to do the right thing, neither yielding to fear in a, in a cowardly way, nor discarding it in a totally reckless or foolhardy way, but doing the right thing in the right way, for the right reasons, at the right time, and acting courageously in the face of fear. You can think of a firefighter, for example. Uh, while everyone else is running out of the burning building, the firefighter's job is to run into the burning building. And that requires overcoming fears or dealing with fears. But firefighters do this on a regular basis. And by doing so again and again, 
they gradually acquire a disposition to run into burning buildings and to do so for the right reasons, to save people that are in the building and to, yeah, to save and preserve as much of the good as possible there. Now, when a human being develops the virtues, and not just courage, but all of them, temperance and prudence and and justice and all the little virtues that go with those big virtues that St. Thomas outlines, when a person uh, acquires those virtues and grows in them, the person is no longer a slave to his or her passions or immediate impulses. The person is freed interiorly in the sense that he or she becomes able to follow what he or she really wants to do, which is to lead a life of beatitude. I mean, to enter into beatitude, to know happiness, to know the true good, to know what uh, life is all about in the sense of really come to enjoy the goodness that's available to us in our life, in our world, according to our situation and our human nature. We all want that. We all want beatitude. We all want happiness. We all want to, to be good, to do good, and to live well. And it's the virtues that free us from our slavery to unruly, uh, unreasonable passions. And so when we uh, grow in the virtues, that's when the person really becomes free, free of the dictatorship of, of passion, of impulsiveness, of whim. So the free person is not someone who just does whatever his impulses or whims or passions say uh, at the moment. The free person is someone who lives according to the mean of virtue in a stable and continuous way and increasingly acquires more and more interior freedom. And that is the good life. That is the good life. It's the life of knowing beatitude, knowing happiness, knowing God, knowing oneself, knowing other people, and, and acting and interacting with all of them in a reasonable way. So a classic definition of the good life, I mean, when we get from Aristotle, he calls it eudaimonia. Eudaimonia is life according to reason, where reason is precisely the mean between extremes in these various matters. So when someone is leading a good life, the person is um, living this way. Okay, this is life according to reason. Actually, to tell you the truth, there's two interpretations in Aristotle's own writings, especially in the Nicomachean Ethics, about what it means to lead a life according to reason. One of the definitions, or one of the interpretations, I've sort of hinted at already, or have given you already, one interpretation of what it means to live according to reason goes like this. You and I are normally, ordinarily, all human beings, naturally, are members of a body politic. So in the ancient world, the form of uh, political life is the polis, the city. And Aristotle 
understands it, that human beings just kind of occur in cities. Like we're born in cities, we're raised in cities, we live in cities. And we all have various uh, practical affairs that we go about in the city. Uh, in our society, it's maybe going to school, carrying, going, going to work, carrying out your job, whatever it may be. One may be a lawyer, a doctor, a pharmacist, or a teacher, a professor, or whatever. And uh, people have their families, people have their friendships, people have the various uh, things they're undertaking. They might go to various games, they might be taking, uh, undertaking commercial or financial um, actions of some kind or enterprises with one another. Uh, there's also the deliberations at law. There are juries that, they would, that people sit on. There are, uh, there's voting that we do. All of that is just part of life in the body politic. What it means to live according to reason on this interpretation is to live out that life in the body politic, going about your practical affairs day in and day out, but doing so in a way that your behavior is well moderated, not going to any one extreme or another. Extreme, not going to any extreme in matters of food and drink, for example, living temperately, not going to extremes in sexual matters, leading a chaste life, not going to extremes in um, any matters of justice, you know, but rather rendering to each person what is due to him or her in exchanges, after exchanges, and in other ways. It also means, uh, it, you know, for Aristotle, there's a number of virtues that he lists. He even talks about getting down to matters like joking and humor. Uh, some people can go to extremes, tell the wrong kind of joke at the wrong time in the wrong context. Other, and you can, other people keep their sense of humor sort of in line with the various circumstances of our life together in society. But this is what it means to live according to reason on the first interpretation. It basically means to lead a well-moderated life in the body politic and to go about your practical affairs doing that, doing that, and that's what it means to live and to live well. That is eudaimonia. That's the good life. And that's how Aristotle thinks about it. It's basically what today we might say being a, a, a good, honest citizen or a decent, honest citizen with a host of uh, character traits that keep you in line, if we could say, in the body politic or in our life together in society. Okay, that's one interpretation. It's life according to the mean of the moral virtues. That would be one understanding of what it means to live according to reason. But there's another understanding Aristotle acknowledges. Because you yourself might be saying, now wait a second, is that all there really is to life? <laughs> is that all there really is, is to just go about our practical affairs? Um, our financial affairs, our health affairs, our professional affairs, our family affairs. Just go about your, your practical affairs in a way that's you know, well-moderated and not going to extremes in any way. Like, is that all there is? Is that, that is the good life? I mean, couldn't there be something more than that? Uh, this was a serious question that Aristotle himself raised and he realized 
especially in the last book of his Nicomachean Ethics, there's another way to understand what it means to live according to reason. And he describes it as living in accord with the highest and best thing in us. And as far as he understood it, the highest and best thing in us is our reason. And really, for Aristotle, that meant our ability to philosophize, to ask the big questions about reality, and to seek the ultimate explanations for uh, things in reality, for reality as a whole. And on this understanding, what it means to live in accord with reason is not just to go about your affairs in the city and you know, go about your practical affairs and try to lead a moderate, a well-moderated life. No, on this understanding, if you really wanna be happy, if you want real eudaimonia, or like more perfect, we could say, what you need to do is in a way, step back from the practical affairs of life in the city, and you need to devote yourself to researches into the truth, and do so for the truth's own sake, and for the, or for the sake of knowing, for knowledge, for the sake of knowledge itself, and for the sake of the truth, just to understand it. And we can call this life not only practical life, but really contemplative life. That's the name it's come to have down through the tradition. And this is exactly what Aristotle himself did. He and a couple of his friends literally stepped out of life in the city. They set up the Lyceum and they undertook huge amounts of research. And they gathered many, many, many specimens of natural species all around. And they, they undertook studies in in the natural sciences. That's why Aristotle is sometimes called the father of biology. There's large work, extensive works he wrote on animals, the parts of animals and various natural species. But he and his friends also uh, gathered a huge number of constitutions from various cities uh, all around. And they did a comparative analysis of various constitutions of various cities to look at how people live. And that's really the beginning of the, of the basic classifications that we have in political science and political philosophy about the different forms of government. There's aristocracies, there's oligarchies, there's uh, democracies, there's monarchies, there's, there's various classifications of these things. Aristotle and his buddy all worked that out in their philosophical commune. And for Aristotle, that was it. That was life according to reason in the highest sense. And, and really what this leads to is really the ultimate enterprise, which is in metaphysics, when you gather together under one heading, all things, both material and immaterial. So both the things in the world around us that are clearly material, but also immaterial things like the unmoved mover, the existence of which he thought he demonstrated in his physics. And then you gather all that together under the name of being, being as being. Then you contemplate being as being and the mind slowly after a long period of time and many distinctions rises up 
to catch a glimpse of the first principle of all things, the same unmoved mover, but now understood as pure act. Pure act. And that's it. That's the happy life. That's the best a human being can do. And at the end of the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle has an exhortation where he exhorts him and his buddies. It seems they're the guys who are, working, who are living in this commune together and doing all this research and philosophy together. He exhorts them and says, let's not listen to those who say that we ought not to spend our life this way, but rather let's strive with everything in us to live according to what is most noble within us and to try to rise up and catch a sight of the first principle of everything. And, and that's, that's the second interpretation of life according to reason. That would be life of the contemplation of the truth. So now, you might be left thinking, wow, is that as good as it gets? Well, for a pagan, probably, yeah. That's as good as it gets. For someone who's never met God incarnate, for someone who's never received a divine revelation like we have received in Christ Jesus, uh, if you and I were simply ancient Greek um, pagans who had never received a divine revelation, a good case could be made. Yeah, that's as good as it gets. That's as good as the good life can be for a human being. So try to contemplate the highest principle of all from what has been given to us in nature and the natural world around us. What else do we have if we were pagans? But God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, and God has revealed himself more, more radically than he has through nature alone and through the prophets and the apostles and the testimony that comes down to us and what we've received by faith and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit We've received a divine revelation, and those who believe in the divine revelation that has come to us know that there is something more, something a lot more, vastly more than what Aristotle and his friends knew and understood, even though there's a kind of continuity with it. What has been revealed to us is the reality of God's wisdom and love and his plan for the salvation of the human race to draw us into communion with the Holy Trinity. That's something Aristotle and his buddies never even so much as imagined. And that's been given to us in divine revelation, in, in grace, in faith, hope, and love, in our baptism, in our life in, in Christ, in the church. Now, since that's been given to us, we have to ask again, now, what do we mean by the good life? What do we mean by the good life? And St. Thomas has another, and we could say further interpretation that is in a way in continuity with Aristotle, but in a way goes way beyond him. So let's try to unpack that a little bit. And let's use both of these interpretations. We'll use both. So let's start with the interpretation that the good life is life according to the mean of virtue. It's well-moderated behavior in uh, the life of a citizen, in a city, in one's practical affairs. If the good life is life according to the virtues, if we think of it that way, well, what's the ultimate virtue for St. Thomas Aquinas? What's the primary and most fundamental 
virtue of them all, it's going to be charity, charity. And that's something that Aristotle doesn't even know about, the grace of charity and to have the virtue of charity infused into your soul, the theological virtue. Aristotle knows nothing of that. Friendship is at the heart of the good life on St. Thomas, Thomas's understanding of things. And what St. Thomas says is that charity is the form of all the virtues. So now you can take out your handouts. And if you look at the first set of quote, if you go down to the bottom to the quotes, you can, I just have two quotes there from St. Thomas to show you how fundamental charity is. The first thing he says is that charity is called the form of all the virtues. That's a saying that comes down to him from the fathers of the church, especially Augustine. And then the second one, that charity is compared to the foundation or root insofar as all the other virtues draw their sustenance and nourishment therefrom. So there's two quotes from St. Thomas that tell us that charity is the form or the root the foundation of all the virtues. What does that mean? That's the big question. What does that mean? If we can grasp what that means, it really seriously, seriously changes how one thinks about the good life from just a pagan sort of philosophical point of view. So what is charity? And here's where St. Thomas's teaching on charity uh, is so important. What he says is, charity is friendship. That's really the gist of it. That's really the essence of charity. St. Thomas loved that passage in the Gospel of John where the Lord says in the Last Supper discourse to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but friends. That's an amazing statement, St. Thomas realized. No pagan would ever so much as imagine being friends with God. In fact, in the Nicomachean Ethics, when Aristotle is discussing friendship in those two marvelous books on friendships, book eight and nine in the Nicomachean Ethics, you know, those are lectures he probably gave to his friends or students in his school. And, and so there's questions that are raised along the way. One of the students just throws a question out there and says, can a man be friends with God? And Aristotle just says, of course not. It's impossible. God and human beings have nothing in common. Now let's continue. And it goes on. So Aquinas, I think, was able to take that passage in the Nicomachean Ethics put it side by side with what the Lord says in the Gospel of John, I no longer call you servants, but friends, and realize, whoa, something has happened here that Aristotle couldn't even imagine. God himself has, in a way, closed the distance between himself and us, and now God and human beings do have something in common. We have a common nature because God is now human and God gives us his grace and divinizes us 
and we have something in common with God in a manner of speaking. So now friendship with God is possible in a way that Aristotle couldn't even envision. And once you realize the magnitude of that, I think you just have to say, that's everything. That's everything. That's what life is all about. That's the good life to be, to be God's friend. That would be amazing. And once you're established in that kind of friendship with God, life is about God now. It's about your friend. It's about God who's loved you and, you, and, and the love you have for him. And that's, that's, it's like everything's about it. That's, that's everything now. And it's going to put all the other virtues, courage, justice, temperance, uh, it's going to put it all in a different perspective and a different light. So now, when you undertake these other things, these activities, these virtuous activities, you're going to do it for God. And you're going to do it according to the standards that are set by the friendship with God. So now courage doesn't just mean being like a brave soldier in battle like Aristotle thought. Courage is what the martyrs display when they lay down their life for Christ. It's a, it's a, there's been a shift and a change in what, the virtu what virtuous living is, but it all revolves around friendship. So let's take a minute to think about what's involved in friendship, because this is so deep. And, and what Aquinas does is so, is so brilliant in a way. He takes all the things that Aristotle says about friendship between one human being and another on a horizontal and sort of natural level, and he, and he uses all that truth which Aristotle has about friendship to interpret and understand our friendship with God. And he's able to give a, a really rich and deep account of what friendship with God is, what charity really is. So let's look at the top of the handout and let's go down the principles. I have 10 principles of friendship that we get from Aristotle, okay? Let's just go down these. So number one, in every friendship, Aristotle says, there's a shared good, okay? What Aristotle means is, in the, the truest, most perfect form of friendship, the friends share something, and they share something good. What do they share? They share character, like moral character. They share attributes or traits or features. So two people gravitate to each other on the basis of their character that they have, then you have the deepest and most profound kind of friendship, character friendship. Well... God has made us his friends in Christ Jesus. What has he done? He's poured out his spirit upon us, and we can now enter into a character friendship with Christ. We want his character. We want his qualities, his attributes, and he shares them with us by grace. He shares his life with us. He sh actually, what we share most is his happiness, his joy, his beatitude. It's, it's a little bit like this. It's kind of like God in himself, just eternally, he's just eternally beatitude. He's happy, like perfectly. He's like, hey, I get to be God. I mean, what could be better than that? I mean, nothing's better than God, and I get to be God. That's amazing, right? <laughs> 
the divine beatitude is amazing. It's ineffable. Who knows what it is? Only God knows the divine beatitude. Only he is, what, acquainted with it or comprehends it? Uh, but what God does in Christ and in the gift of grace is say, this beatitude that I have and that I know and that I am, I want you to have that too. In fact, here, have me, my beatitude, God. That's the good that we share in common with, with God, thanks to Christ and the gift of the Spirit. And that is, a, it's, it's mind-boggling if you think about it. We have a shared good with God, and the good we share with God is God. And our, our whole lives can then be organized around receiving that and growing in that and knowing that more and more and more. Now that's the good life. And that's way beyond working out metaphysical arguments for the existence of God. It's a much more intimate uh, sort of knowledge and goodness and beatitude that's been given to us. That's one principle. There's a second one. In every friendship, there is benevolence. And the best way to think about this is to just look at the etymology of benevolence, benevolencia, to will good. So in every friendship, one friend wills a good to their set. Hey, I want you to have this. I want to do this for you. Come on, let's go out to dinner. I'll buy. And that's an act of benevolence. Uh, you will a nice dinner to your friend. That's what friends do. They are benevolent to each other. And in our friendship with God, in our charity, on the one hand, there's our benevolence to him. Here, God, I, I want to go to Mass for you. I want to, I want to say this prayer for you. I'll, I'll, I'll say some acts of praise and thanksgiving. I want you to receive that here. Or I'll do this, for, this thing for my neighbor and I'll do it for you. That's benevolence. But in every friendship, there's mutual benevolence. That's the third principle. I mean, unrequited love is a very difficult thing, right? And, when, and, and there can be no friendship when there, where there's unrequited love. So not only do we, we love God, but more importantly, he loves us. In fact, our love for him is based on the love he first showed us, the benevolence he first showed us. I mean, what did he, what did he do? He sent his son into the world to die on the cross for us. That's benevolence. No man has greater love than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So he laid down his life in this ultimate act of kindness towards us and goodness and benevolence. And so now we can live in this friendship with God where he's done all these good things for us and continues to do good things for us and give good things to us all the way up to the point of giving, him himself, giving us himself and we do good things to God in return, primarily by loving our, our neighbor, but there's also acts of the virtue of religion, prayer, praise, thanksgiving, those kinds of things. Number four, in every friendship, there is ecstasy. 
Now, when you hear the word ecstasy, you might think of someone who goes into a kind of mystical experience or has a super emotionally charged kind of experience or someone who's kind of high on joy or something like that. That's kind of the modern sort of connotation of it. But uh, St. Thomas has something a little bit more um, down to earth, I guess you could say, in mind. And when you think of it this way, you, you might start to realize you're already living in a kind of ecstasy. Not in the modern sense, but what it means is loving the friend for his or her own sake. So what friendship does is friendship brings us out of ourselves and moves us or wins us to paying attention to the friend first, in a way, and seeking the friend's own good for the sake of the friend. So it becomes more and more about the, about the friend. Life begins to revolve, so to speak, around what the other person is and wants. That's the ecstasy, what Aquinas has in mind, is when the intention of the friend goes out to the other and is sort of oriented towards serving, protecting, promoting, and building up the good of the other person. So it's loving the other, the friend, we should say, for his or her own sake. And if you have friendships, you do that already. So there's a kind of ecstasy you are already familiar with. Or in your friendship with God, it's doing things just for God, just for you. Number five, in every friendship, there is the sharing of secrets. So something Aristotle identified that St. Thomas talks a lot about. Yeah, who are your friends? Here's a question, if you want to answer that question, here's, a, here's how you could answer it. You could say, who will you share your deepest secrets with? Who are the people you are willing to become vulnerable with, open up and expose all your secrets, including mistakes or flaws or imperfections or points you might be ashamed of or whatever else may be, thoughts you have, secret thoughts, things you might not really wanna share with other people. Your friends are the people that you will open up with and really um, disclose what's in your heart. And because of that sharing of secrets, there is a kind of bonding of a heart-to-heart -heart bonding that takes place and a sense of a privileged sort of um, yeah bond or union in which I'll tell you things I won't tell anyone else. You tell me things you won't tell anyone else. And so it'll be just us kind of sharing these things with one another. That's friendship. There's the, and that's the effect of the sharing of secrets. Now, God has done something like this with us, and we've done something like this with him. I mean, how has God shared his secrets with us? That's what divine revelation is. That's what the, the, the light he gave to the prophets in the Old Testament and the incarnation of the word and the time he spent with the 12 apostles and then the gift of the spirit to the church afterwards and the inspired authors of scripture. God has literally 
opened his secrets, the secret of his interior life, the Trinity, to us and made it known to us. And we are called to open our hearts and share the secrets of our hearts with God. That's what takes place in prayer. That's what takes place a great deal in the sacrament of penance, exposing one's sins and um, shame and guilt and giving it all to him. So what what results is a profound union of hearts between Christ and us, between God and us. Again, that's something Aristotle never would have fathomed. You mean like you can like be friends with God and you can open the secrets of your heart and enter into that? Yes, with God himself. Impossible except for the great incarnation of the word and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Number seven, in every friendship, there is the intention to please. There is the intention to please. Friends just want to please the other. They want to satisfy the other person's will. That's one of the things that's important about the sharing of secrets. When you open the secrets of your heart to a friend, you can then know what your friend really wants and really doesn't want, and then you can seek to please, seek to do the things that will really delight and give joy to your friend. And this is what friends do. They learn what each other likes and they sort of do things uh, that that the other person likes. And they'll do it spontaneously, freely, without a sense of being forced. Number eight, in every friendship, there is conformity of will. What does that mean, conformity of will? The old saying is that friends have one and the same will, idem vele. One and the same will. So let me try to give you an example. Have you ever had this kind of conversation with your friend? Let's say it's, oh, I don't know, a Friday night. You get together. And you say, what do you want to do tonight? And your friend says, I don't know. What do you want to do? <laughs> and then uh, the person might come back and say, well, I don't know. I just want to do what you want to do. <laughs> and they say, well, what do you, I want to do what you want to do. What do you want to do? That is conformity of wills. That's the Eden Vele, okay? And it's based on and follows from that intention to please. And you know how these conversations go. You might say something like, well, I want to go get some Chinese. Well, and you might know, but your friend doesn't really like Chinese. She says, ah, I don't know. Do you want to get Chinese? Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, but you know he doesn't want to do it because he's revealed the secrets of his heart to you in the past and the intention to please. So I'd say, okay, let's not get Chinese. I don't really want to get Chinese because you know he doesn't really want to get Chinese. So you know how that goes. This is all kind of, this is, I guess you could say, abstract language for very concrete everyday experiences that we all have. The amazing thing is that in charity, we have this with God. We say, thy will be done. That's seeking to please God. But the old saying is that God does, God does the will of those who do his will. So the more you, do, you are, are intent on doing his will, the more he'll do yours. 
which is really very important, for example, in vocational discernment. A lot of people spin their wheels thinking about what is God calling me to? What state of life should I enter upon? And they'll say, what do you want, God? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? I just want to know your will. I just want to know your will. And eventually there comes a point where you need to ask, where God asks you, what do you want? And that counts. And that matters. And God will do your will if you're intent on doing his. And you start to realize this is not a competition where I have to just bring myself into conformity with like an extrinsic criterion out there. This is really about a union of hearts forming more and more. So, I mean, St. Therese of Lisieux basically says in, in, her, in the autobiography of her soul, she knew that God wanted her to be a Carmelite nun because she wanted to. That's the kind of friendship she had with God. Number nine, in every friendship, there is life together, convivium. Friends need to live together. Aristotle would have said long-distance relationships just can't work. They're just not really friendships. I think he would have said that. And St. Thomas may have said the same thing. We are embodied creatures, and we need to be together in the same place. And you know what it's like when, I don't know, you, you left home, you came to college, you moved into dorms or apartments together, and all of a sudden there's convivium. And where there's convivium friendships are going to form. It just goes, they, the two go together. And when you have two people who are real friends, they seek convivium, they seek life together, they want time together. They want to be in the same location, they want to be in each other's sight and to be able to touch each other, and they want to be able to yeah, do things together, go to dinner together, go to the park together, go on walks together, go for hikes together, go bowling together, whatever it may be. It's just being together. That's what they want. And that's critical to the friendship. And it's that, it, without that, well, what, what's a friendship without that? God has established convivium with us. That's one of the principal reasons for the Blessed Sacrament. If you look at the Catechism, it says one of the principal reasons Christ instituted the Blessed Sacrament was precisely because he wanted to be together with us until the end of the world. And he wanted us to be together with him until the end of the world. So the Eucharist is the sign and the very reality of convivium with God. There's a particular place you can go. You can go to the church. You can go in, you can kneel down, and you can be a certain number of feet away from the tabernacle, and you're with the Lord. That's convivium. There's also the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. That's convivium too. Aquinas even talks about the intimacy of heart intimacy in our hearts that we enjoy with the indwelling, especially the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
And finally, number 10, in every friendship, the friend is another self. The other person becomes a part of you and a kind of extension of you. You become, in a way, extensions of each other. That's why if someone assaults or attacks your friend, you feel it. You feel the pain. Someone steals your friend's laptop or steals your friend's this. You, you feel it. It's a blow to you because it's your friend. Now, if that's the way it is with our horizontal or natural friendships, how much more so with Christ? I mean, if we're friends of Christ, what does that make you and me? Another Christ. And this is how you can get a basis for, saying, for talking about divinization. We become gods. We become God by his befriending us and, him, and we become an extension of him in the world, in a manner of speaking. All that's wrapped up in, in charity and in friendship. And you can see now why charity is the form of all the virtues. If, if you and I have a friendship like that with God, we live for that. And all of our other dispositions, the decisions we make, the way that prudence works in us, uh, the acts of courage, the things that we're willing to bear and endure courageously, and the temperance, the way we're willing to restrain and moderate ourselves, that all now is readjusted in light of this friendship with Christ. So we don't just restrain our food to like you know, sort of uh, healthy levels, but Christians undertake fasting and abstinence. And again, we don't just um, try to be brave in battle or things like that. No, Christians undergo martyrdom and, and they bear tremendous difficulties in order to proclaim the name of Christ. And the decisions that we make, what seems prudent to you and to me, is seriously adjusted. Like to a lot of people, it, like Therese of Lisieux, for example, it just seems good to go into a cloistered monastery. Like, of course, that's what you would do for the sake of a friend like this. That's how she saw it. So everything gets relativized to this charity, to this love. Um, that's why if you look at the third quote down below, Aquinas says, the spiritual life consists principally in charity. That is the good life. That is the happy life for those who've been introduced to, to God by grace. The, the heart of it all, the, the big thing is this friendship. That's what it's all about. So friendship and freedom and the good life are the same thing when you're talking about charity. But what about the other interpretation? What about the other interpretation, briefly? What if we think about the good life, not as the life according to the virtues, but the life of contemplating the truth? If we think about it that way, then friendship's also at the heart of it, but for a different reason. Because if you think about the contemplative life, 
Or Now, by the contemplative life, I don't mean going into a cloister and becoming a monk or a nun. The contemplative life for Aquinas is a term that refers to some interior activity. That The monasteries, that's the cloistered or the monastic state of life. That's an external arrangement of um, things so that a person can be devoted to the contemplative life, but the contemplative life is interior, and it's an activity of the intellect contemplating the truth. But the big difference between, let's say, Aristotle and his buddies and their commune and our situation is that we are not limited to knowing God in a philosophical way by doing metaphysics. You and I can know God the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and all the mysteries of the faith, we can know all of that by making one act of faith. And we can devote ourselves and give ourselves to understanding those mysteries, understanding them conceptually, as we're trying to do a little bit tonight, but also experiencing them, taste and see the goodness of the Lord. So when you have the Spirit's gifts of understanding and the Spirit's gifts of wisdom, which are also given to us by grace, there's truly a higher perception of of God and of the presence of God. And that's the contemplative life. So for Aquinas, the contemplative life is a kind of personal familiarity with the indwelling of the Holy Trinity and a personal familiarity with Christ, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the saints, the mysteries of the faith, sacramental life. And it's also understanding and it's entering into a convivium and a conversation, especially in prayer and Lectio Divina and sharing the secrets of one's heart, especially again in prayer and in the sacrament of penance. And slowly, slowly, this friendship becomes more and more like an engine that drives you to know God and know his beatitude and his truth and his light more and more and more. And the eternal life that's in heaven begins in us and just grows and grows and grows here, even here below even in the depths of our souls here below. It begins in baptism, and this eternal life just keeps growing. Aquinas loves to quote John 17, 3. Eternal life is knowing you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's that's what it is. So eternal life begins here below. The very substance of the life that we will have in heaven has begun in us, and you and I enjoy it. Enjoy him. And we enjoy him most fully in contemplative life, just knowing him, just knowing him. But we are driven into contemplation by charity. It's because we love God that we want to contemplate him. And the whole point of contemplating him is to know him more in order to love him more and grow in even more love for him. And as we go further and further down the road, love becomes the very light by which we see God. Let's look at the last quote on our, on our handout. Aquinas says this, 
Although the contemplative life consists chiefly in an act of the intellect, so contemplating is an intellectual activity, it has its beginning in the appetite. He means the will. Since it is through charity that one is urged to the contemplation of God. Those who love God want to think about him, just like friends want to think about each other. They're on each other's minds all the time. And since the end corresponds to the beginning, it follows that the term and also and the end of the contemplative life has its being in the appetite. Since one delights in seeing the object loved and the very delight in the object seen arouses yet a greater love. So like when you see your friend, just this catching sight of your friend, you I mean you love your friend before you even saw the friend, but when you see him, doesn't there like a burst within you and you love even more? And so you see, you love more which in turn makes you look more, which makes you see more, which makes you love more. And it just keeps going more and more and more. Wherefore, Gregory says that when we see one whom we love, we are so aflame as to love him more. And this is the ultimate perfection of the contemplative life, namely that the divine truth be not only seen, but also loved. So the contemplative life flows from a loving heart, and it's meant to enkindle a loving heart so that we live in love. And that's the principal thing in the spiritual life. Now, here's the amazing thing. Last point. As the contemplative life grows more and more, charity becomes not only the, like the origin for the gazing and not only the like the end or the perfection of the gazing, we should say perfection of the gazing. But charity becomes a light. And you can actually look at your friend, God, Christ, through the eyes or the light of love, like gazing. Like we could call it love gazing. I mean, the technical expression is connatural knowledge, but that really means love gazing. Okay, when, when two people really love each other, they look at each other through love. And the old saying is love sees things that other people just won't see and can't see. Those who love see things that those who don't love just don't see. That's why you may have a friend who falls in love with someone and you may scratch your head and say, what in the world does she see in that guy? Okay? And what, what's the, what's, and you may even ask her, what, what, And, and then, uh, what do you see? And then the, I mean, what, what's the answer? What's always the answer? You just don't know him. You just don't understand like I do. Because she loves. Here's the thing, where the love is well-ordered and holy, that kind of love makes you see. When the love is unholy and disordered, that love is blinding and makes a person lose, you know, go awry, go off the right path. Charity, though, is holy love. It's well-ordered love. And so those who look at God with love know things that other people just can't see or know. There was a Carmelite mystic in the, at the end of the, 19th century, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, 
She had a profound love for God and was a profound contemplative. And she used to say about Christ, I can read his soul like a book. That's pretty amazing. Christ is in heaven. She's down here. It may seem very far away, but she'd say, I can read his soul like a book. She like knew what was going on in the soul of Christ. How'd she know that? She loved him immensely, immensely. And she gazed with eyes of love just all the time. That, I want to suggest to you, is the good life. And, and that's freedom, real freedom. Thank you. We'll go over questions.